Before we take a closer look at this Easter story, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that on this day we remember why we believe. That the tomb is indeed empty, that you have risen again to new life. And that upon that rock has built all the rest of our faith. And so, Lord, as we again look at the beauty and the power of the resurrection, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, open hearts and minds to understand and receive the message you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Are you sure? Really? I mean, why do you believe that? I, the Bible tells me so. Yeah, there's a, just default to Sunday school, right? The Bible tells me so. You know, I mean, this is something that we proclaim. We say it over and over again on Easter. But the reality is this idea that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead to a lot of people in the world really seems quite foolish. And I'm perfectly aware of the fact that Easter Sunday this year is also on April Fool's Day. And so for some people, they're sitting there looking at this celebration and this idea of Easter as indeed the biggest April Fool. Because the, the reality is, is that there are many people who, who look at this claim that Christ is risen, that there is a resurrection, that our death is not final, as something that's really quite ridiculous. That's part of the reason why we're actually naming our entire Easter series Foolish Things That Christians Believe because there are many things that we proclaim, that we state, that people in our world look at and they say, that's, that's pretty ridiculous. And so the first one we're looking at is this Easter story, this claim that Christ is risen and that as a result of that, our death is not final. It's ridiculous for people in our modern age, but it was ridiculous for people back then too. In fact, one of the early, earliest Christian leaders, the Apostle Paul, said this. He said that we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Even in the ancient world, this idea that people come back from the dead was seen as ludicrous, was seen as silly and foolish. The only time we see people come back from the dead is when we're like watching a zombie movie, okay? And that's not quite the, the return from the dead that, that we're kind of hoping for. Okay, we look at these zombie films, but this, reality, this idea that, that, that our loved ones, those, uh, those who've died ahead of us, will rise again to new life, that we will see them again, that, that the, that the t and all that is because the tomb was empty on that first Easter day that Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead, it just seems impossible. It seems ludicrous. It seems silly. I'll be honest, before I came to faith, I thought it was nuts, I thought this whole Easter story was at best just a nice little metaphor that expressed our human hopes and desires for a broken world, but it's not based on truth. It's not based on fact. It's just one more religious story that people cling to. Because again, the idea that people would come back from the dead, that, that seems impossible. That's just not something that we see done every day. And so why would I believe? But there's a funny thing about impossible things. And that is that they're only impossible until someone does them. 
Okay, Nelson Mandela himself said this. He says that uh, it always seems impossible until it's done. And there's a couple things that we could point to. There's actually a lot of things we could point to that, that seemed impossible until someone actually did them. For example, many people thought it was impossible to circumnavigate the globe, to actually sail around the world, to take off into the west and arrive from the east. It was nuts. It was silly until... Well, Magellan and his crew actually pulled it off. Magellan himself didn't make it all the way. He actually died in the Philippines, but then his second in command, who was with him the whole way, they, he continued the journey the rest of the way. They set, out, they set sail in, out into the west. They arrived from the east. What seemed impossible now suddenly was very, very possible. Or likewise, people thought that it was impossible that we would ever be able to send a human being to the moon. That there's just no way we could possibly escape Earth's gravity. There's no way that we could possibly launch someone into space. They would survive the journey, walk on the moon, and then we would safely bring them home again until Neil Armstrong did it. Until he put the first human footprints on the surface of the moon. Likewise, people thought it was impossible that the Cubs would ever win a World Series. <laughs> there's no way that's going to happen again. And it did. I'm glad I was alive to see it. <laughs> Wonderful. But you catch my meaning. There are lots of things that seem impossible until someone does them. And that brings us to our challenge for this morning, this belief that coming back from the dead is impossible, that death is final. We look at this idea that people would rise from the dead and we say, that's nuts, that's ludicrous, could never happen, death is final until it's not. Until someone actually comes back from the dead. And suddenly what seems impossible maybe is a lot more probable than we ever could have imagined. And this isn't just an idea that comes to us from like some radical religious fringe. The reality is, is that the resurrection of Jesus is something that scholars have, have taken very, very seriously. The fact that there are scholars who studied at places like Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford and Duke and the University of Chicago could go on and write doctoral dissertations on the historical reliability for the events of that Easter morning shows us that this is something that even academics take seriously. This is not just something that uneducated religious people believe because the Bible tells me so, but that actually there's evidence for believing that this event actually took place. And that's what I want us to do this morning is to take a closer look at the evidence for just a moment. When it comes to evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have actually four biographies of Jesus. Biographies that state that on that Easter morning, eyewitnesses went to the tomb, that they found it empty, and that later on, Jesus Christ himself appeared to them. See, the reason that this was so important for the Christian church is because, as Paul actually said in the reading that we heard just a few moments ago, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You see, the whole Christian religion is based on this one central idea that the tomb was empty and that Christ rose from the dead. And he says, and if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain, that you shouldn't even believe. 
You see, these people who witnessed it then went on to record those events. We have them in four early biographies of Jesus. They go by the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four Gospels that we have in the Bible. And who are these uh, biographers? Well, Matthew was uh, originally a tax collector. He then ended up becoming a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Um, Mark was actually the uh, student, the apprentice of the apostle Peter, who listened to a lot of Peter's preaching and teaching and then wrote those down in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Luke was the traveling companion of St. Paul, but he also was a doctor who visited many of the eyewitnesses and took down their accounts and recorded them. And then John was actually a part of Jesus' inner circle. He, was one, he wasn't just one of the twelve, he was actually one of the three, Peter, James, and John, who are Jesus' closest friends. All four of these biographies come to us from the first century, and they were all written by people who themselves were eyewitnesses or who knew the eyewitnesses and interviewed them. But the question we have to ask when we look at these gospels is, are they reliable? Are they actually credible? I mean, didn't these guys have an agenda? Isn't it possible that, they, that after Jesus died, they didn't want to let go, so they kind of cooked up a story. They all agreed that, 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 that this is what we're going to say, this is what we're going to preach, and that that's how we have our Gospels for today. Are they credible? Can we actually believe them if they have an agenda? Can we believe them if they have an agenda? And I think to answer that objection, um, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg makes a very, very helpful comparison. He says this, you know, since World War II, there have been people who have tried to deny the reality of the Holocaust, saying that it didn't really happen, that it's not historically reliable. And you know who the people are who've provided the best evidence, the most faithful accounts of the Holocaust actually taking place are? It's, it's, the, it's the Jews. It's the Jewish community. They have been the best historians of the Holocaust event. They have mounted evidence upon evidence upon evidence that has been tested and cross-checked by other historians in the academic field. And they've said, these accounts are solid. This evidence is, is believable. There's no way you could possibly deny that the Holocaust took place because of how faithfully they've recounted everything and recorded it for our knowledge today. And the reason why the Jews did that is because, yes, they had an agenda. They didn't want this to ever happen again. And so their response was, let us faithfully recount everything. Let us make sure that the evidence is airtight, that anybody, even the most skeptical, could look at this evidence and see there's no way that this didn't happen. This is absolutely 100% believable. He said, that idea that drove them to faithfully record everything for future generations to test and see is exactly the same mentality that drove these early biographers because they knew that they were going out into a hostile world. They knew that there were people who didn't like Jesus. And they knew that there were people who, when they said that he rose again, were going to do everything in their power to refute that claim. That they were going to try to drum up evidence and false claims and false charges. They knew that there were people who would even try to silence them at the tip of a sword. And so what they did is they said, so we need to make sure that our story can actually be tested by anyone. 
That anyone can look at this tale and themselves, even the most skeptical, and they could examine the evidence for themselves and see that we aren't just making this up. That this is absolutely 100% believable. I actually love how Luke starts his own gospel. He says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Their entire message banked on the fact that skeptics could test it and come away believing. But then the question becomes, well, is it possible that maybe some legendary or mythical elements could have creeped in there between the time that Jesus died and rose again and then they, they recorded these gospels? I mean, is it possible that they got a lot of stuff right but that in, in this kind of gap between the actual events and the actual writing it down that maybe their memory got fuzzy or maybe some sort of myths or legends kind of crept in there and distorted the accounts? And again, to address that, I want to make a comparison for just a moment. By looking at another important historical figure, Alexander the Great. Now, most scholars, uh, serious historians, believe that Alexander actually existed. But one of the things that most serious historians and scholars of Alexander will highlight is that the earliest biographies about Alexander were written by Arian and Plutarch approximately 400 years after he died. And scholars would look at those and they would still say, even though those were written four centuries after Alexander's death, they're still fairly reliable. They're still quite accurate. We can still believe that the details that were recorded by these two historians are true. Because what they found is that most of the legendary material about Alexander only appeared after these two biographies. But it's only after Arian and Plutarch that you start to get really fanciful recountings of Alexander and all of his like mighty demigod-like power. But in Arian and Plutarch's account, they tried to provide just a faithful biography. Now let's compare that to what we have for Jesus for just a moment. Even the most skeptical scholarly estimates date each of the Gospels in the following way. Mark's Gospel written somewhere around 70 AD, Matthew and Luke written somewhere between 80 and 85 AD, and John written somewhere by 90 AD. That means within, short of 100 years after Jesus' death, these four Gospels were recorded, but we actually have reason to believe that you can date them even sooner than that. Because Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is like the second part of his story. And the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul alive and preaching in Rome. And Paul was executed in 62 AD. Which means that if Acts was written before Paul's execution, the Gospel of Luke was written even earlier. And if Mark was one of Luke's sources, it means that Mark was written even earlier. Which then puts Mark's Gospel within 10 to 20 years after the events of Jesus' death. Compare that to Alexander the Great for just a moment. On the grand scale of history, that is practically a newsflash. In fact, it led one scholar at Oxford University, A.N. Sherwin-White, to basically conclude this. Not even two full generations is enough time for legend to develop and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. You see, these guys wrote and published these biographies when enemies of Jesus were still alive who could have looked at the resurrection story and said, no, he didn't rise from the dead. Here's the body. No, he didn't do those miracles. I was there. And yet they couldn't. If you actually look at the historical record, they're not able to refute it. The best thing that they can can summon up is like, yeah, the tomb was empty. We don't know what happened to the body. That's basically what the skeptics could, could muster. 
There is the point that I'm trying to make in all of this is that there's overwhelming evidence for believing in the resurrection. In fact, Paul himself is a great witness of this. Paul became a follower of Jesus just two years after the crucifixion. He ended up visiting the apostles three years after his own conversion, and somewhere in that time he was taught the Christian faith. And here's what he says about what he was taught. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he actually appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. See, the point, the reason why I show this is if Paul became a believer in Jesus just two years after Jesus' death, it means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a belief that Christians proclaimed from the very beginning. It's not a legend that they developed later on. It was something that survived the crucible of skeptical testing, of torture, of trial, and of execution of most of the early witnesses. And all of them went to their graves saying, this actually happened. And I know because I was there. Because I was there. So why does that matter? It matters because if it's true, it changes everything. If Jesus Christ actually died and rose again from the dead, it means that you cannot have a casual relationship with him. Because it vindicates everything that he claimed about himself. That if he died and rose again from the dead, it means that he is indeed the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. That he is indeed the resurrection and the light. That he is indeed the Lord over all creation. So you can't just put Jesus on some nice little pedestal beside Muhammad and Buddha and think that he's just some, one other religious figure that maybe you can check in on every once in a while. You can't put him alongside the other world's religions and philosophies and say, well, it's a nice idea among a whole host of other really nice ideas. No, if Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again in time and in space, then it means that he is exactly who he claims to be, that he is the Lord over all of creation. And that is something that we have to consider. The reason we have to consider it is because of the fact that death is indeed real. I love how William Lane Craig puts it. He says, The question of God is too important to put off until it's too late. Because what Christians have been saying is that this resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that can actually provide hope in our darkened world. I love how Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive. He says, when the mortal has been clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, the reason why God came in time and space and rose again from the dead is so that you and I could believe that he did that for us. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything because through it, God does something incredible. The first thing he does is he gives us hope. He gives us hope that death is not the end. That actually our entire world will be raised to new life just the same way Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I love how scripture actually ends. This is what John writes down. He says that at the end of all things, when Christ comes again, we will see a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Paul says that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too will be raised from the dead, and so too all of creation will be renewed. And so when we look out into our dark and broken world, shattered by war, violence, death, and disease, Jesus says that just as I rose from the dead, so all of creation will rise from the ashes, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But another gift that the resurrection gives us, it actually gives us freedom from fear. Freedom from fear because if we know that we have eternal life with God, what that means is that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That there is nothing in this world, no matter how terrifying or how uncertain, that can possibly rob us of the hope that we have that even if we die, we will rise again to new life. We don't have to be afraid of the things of this world because we know that our lives are a gift given to us by God and that we have them from now into eternity. And that brings a sense of security. I love how Paul goes on. He says this. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That even when we face death, we do not lose hope or joy. That actually the words of one Christian to another before they die is not goodbye, but rather until we rise again in glory. That's a gift that God gives us through the resurrection. Finally, the final gift that he gives us is he gives us a purpose. We can know that our lives are not futile, that we actually have an eternity, and so we live now in light of that eternity. Christians are not just people who are sitting around waiting until heaven comes again. It's because we've seen a future kingdom where every tear is wiped away, where there is no more death or disease or crying or pain, that Christians actually go out into the world to bring that kingdom reality now. I think this is part of the reason why most hospitals have been started by churches and by Christians, that one of the largest justice organizations, the International Justice Mission, was started by a Christian who wanted to save people from bondage and slavery and the sex trade. Christians go out and we live our lives on purpose because we know there is a future coming, and we desire that our lives and our world would reflect the glory of God from now until he returns again to make all things new. See, the resurrection is the best 
news possible. It's the foundation of our faith. And it's a foundation because of the fact that Christ came, died, and rose again, that we know his tomb is empty. And because he lives, we know that we too can also live. That what at first seemed impossible and foolish not only seems probable, but is the only place upon which we can rest for hope and peace. That is the good news of Easter. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let's stand and give him glory as we praise him and sing together.